This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. Over the past 10 years or so, social media has taken over our lives. Most of us have social media accounts, if not live in these spaces altogether. But more than that, it has also become a powerful advocacy tool for marginalised groups, including indigenous communities, sexual minorities, racial minorities and more. It has transformed the lives of these communities by providing platforms for expression, connection and mobilisation. And this is what media expert Dr. Benjamin Lowe and political scientist Professor James Chin explore in their new book titled New Media in the Margins. The book is a fascinating window into the world of marginalised communities on social media. They join me on the show today to discuss their book. Benjamin, James, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Dashan. Thanks for having us. Good afternoon. Ben, let me start with you. Tell me about this book. What inspired you to write it and what were you hoping to find or highlight? You know, I first conceptualized this book sort of like in the pre-pandemic years. And one thing that, you know, when I first started, uh, you know, right after my PhD was completed, I noticed that there was actually not a lot of uh, works that was done in the Malaysian space regarding that. You know, we see a lot of new media studies. We see a lot of uh, sort of like uh, community engagement kind of works. But a lot of it is focused mostly on the mainstream or majority communities as well. You know, those that are often what we see in the limelight, things that are much more commonplace, right. much more popular. Whereas for the experiences that are for mostly marginalized, other or minority communities, we don't really see much of that. And so uh, based on this idea, I sort of like approached James to see, would this be something do you think that we could work on as well? And we tried to assemble a like various scholars that we know to see how we can sort of like um, explore a lot of these little um, gaps in research that is quite present in Malaysian academia and also academic study as well. Um, James, um, like uh, Ben pointed out, right, the, he's a new media scholar. You are more of the, the political scientist um, here. What intrigued you about this conversation? Um, how do you think, um, you know, social media has been transforming the lives of uh, marginalised communities, um, especially when it comes to, you know, looking at it from a political perspective? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand that in the Malaysian social media space, uh, basically when you're talking about the marginalized community, basically you talk about groups of people who are often ignored in terms of the public awareness. So they're trying to get their voice out. And in the Malaysian context, when you talk about marginalized groups speaking out, trying to claim their space under the Malaysian sun, basically you're talking about a political space. I think what is very clear from this book is that there's actually a lot of different different voices out there in the Malaysian public. It's just that very often we are drowned out by what we call the two hours, race and religion. And we often forget that there are actually other groups uh, operating in society, in Malaysian society. And therefore, I think it's important to document these groups. And that's exactly what we did in this edited volume. So I think two things are happening in terms of social media and the marginalized group. One is that it's not only given their, uh, their own voice, they can tell the rest of the world what they think on every issues, but I think more importantly, it's given them an agency to answer back because very often in the Malaysian context, right, we are only sort of seeing Malaysian society basically stroke, uh, quote unquote, the Malay society, uh, the Chinese and the Indians. We forget there are other groups as well. And basically, we not only do we ignore them, there are also stereotypes about these groups as well. So I think it, the, the, the whole idea of social media is that we give them the agency for them to tell us 
what they really think and who they really are. And I think it's really, really important that uh, this group speak not only through social media, but the idea is that uh, they must be given their proper place under the Malaysian sun because I think it's critically important, for example, right, uh, before the big hoo-ha over the Malaysia Agreement 1963, um, nobody talks about the people of Sabah and Sarau. We just assume that, you know, these are these are small groups there running right. around, maybe, quote-unquote, less civilized than people living in Peninsular Malaysia. But in fact, that's not the reality at all. James, you are an expert on Sarawak politics. Um, you wrote a chapter on how the Dayak community in Sarawak uses Facebook to fight for their rights. And talk to me a little bit about this. What issues are they fighting for and why Facebook specifically? That was a chapter I wrote with uh, another Sarawakian, an academic uh, in, in America, a good friend of mine, Bobby. So basically, the idea of, of, of doing this chapter is that uh, we realized uh, very early on that uh, in terms of one of the key issues in Sarawak, is a thing called NCR, Native Customary Land. It has been an ongoing issue for many, many years. Uh, the most simplest way of explaining NCR is that before uh, we put on the uh, Western form of governance in, in, in Sarawak, right, uh, there's no such thing as land title. Land is, is always uh, regarded as something that's owned by the community. And if you work on the land, the land sort of belongs to you, but not in the Western legal sense. So what happened was that after the coming of the colonial power independence, the Sarawak government uh, created this category called NCR. Uh, but the way the law is written is that it is uh, very, very difficult for the indigenous groups in Sarawak to access uh, this NCR land and also to claim ownership under the modern land system tenure. This has been an ongoing issue in Sarawak uh, since the 1960s. Uh, on the one hand, the state government in Sarawak claims that uh, this land actually doesn't belong to the native community. And on the other hand, the natives, of course, said that, you know, uh, we have been, uh, you know, cultivating using this land for, you know, way before even any form of government even exists. And therefore, we have the right to this land. So that's essentially the conflict. But what we notice is that a lot of them, in terms of trying to find a voice, uh, they have taken to Facebook. I think there are some very, very specific reasons why they took to Facebook. Part of it is that Facebook, for whatever reason, was easily accessible to a lot of people. Right. Part of it is what we call the first move advantage. If you remember, Facebook sort of arrived in Malaysia after so-called political bloggers and all that sort of thing. Right. So Facebook was an easy thing for you to set up because unlike a political blogger, right, you don't have to register a website address, URL, whatever it is. You just have to open an account, set up your page, Basically, the idea of these people is that they wanted to present uh, their point of view because uh, in, in, in the old days before social media, unlike the world we live now, uh, basically people could only access the government narratives on why uh, they had no right to the NCR. So it's really, uh, you know, they want to put their voice out about uh, why they actually uh, have rights under NCR. But more importantly, uh, they want to connect with other like-minded groups around the world. Uh, in the rest of the world, this issue is actually called native titles. It's not unique to Sarawak. It's actually found all over the Asia-Pacific region. And, you know, when it comes to issue of land, it's always a very sensitive, emotional issue. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a really, a really not only a big issue in Sarawak, but the issue of NCR uh, in terms of Facebook is really blown up. And a lot of those uh, uh, groups in Sarawak who are promoting for NCR rights, uh, what they found was that Facebook was extremely important in not only connecting 
with like-minded people in Sarawak, but as Ben mentioned, uh, connecting with like-minded people and sharing my experiences with like-minded groups throughout the world. So I think this is where I think uh, people uh, should not underestimate Facebook. So even today, even though Facebook is no longer uh, that popular among young people anymore, among the more established organization, Facebook is still the go-to place. Do you think whether it's in, in this context, the Dayak community, or perhaps, you know, looking wider, the indigenous communities in Sarawak um, as a whole, um, have they successfully put their, their point of view out? Have they created an alternative narrative um, to, to what the state has been spewing? Because it's not just they, uh, you know, the, the, the indigenous groups who can create Facebook groups, right? Even the state can spread their narratives on, on Facebook as well. So the only way to answer that question is depends on which group you're talking about. Right. Uh, it depends on you know, the recipients, uh, who are the people visiting the pages. So I think what is clear is that because they are on Facebook, right, people who are interested in NCR issues can actually find, uh, you know, information straight from the source itself. I mm-hmm. think that's a really important point. Uh, previously, you know, they got to ring a funny number in Kuching or Miri or Bintulu. You know, people may or may not pick up the phone. But now with Facebook... You know, you can be sitting anywhere around the world and log into the Facebook and go to, to their Facebook page and find out what the press releases are, what their positions are, all that sort of thing. So I think that's really important. But I think uh, far more important in terms of uh, Facebook is that uh, Facebook really has sort of become the go-to place in terms of documentation. You know, if you put your stuff out on Facebook, right, you can sort of scroll back. So it's almost like a, a, a library of, of NCR issues and all that sort of thing. The only thing lacking in, in Facebook for all these NCR groups, and I'm not only talking about NCR, but also all the other marginalized community using Facebook, is that uh, nobody has found an effective way of using the, the community created through Facebook link and link that to the real world. So, for example, uh, in the Sarap case, right, with all these uh, native uh, groups uh, promoting NCR issues, uh, when it comes to uh, meeting live in person, right, uh, the, the the Facebook is when you link people together, but it doesn't mean that these same people will link with each other in, in real life. So we, we are, in, in a way, we're talking about two different communities, the real world community and the virtual community. And I think one of the important points about this book that we're trying to, uh, the message we're trying to get out is that in some ways, the virtual community need not be less real than the real community. It's just that the virtual community, you link people who are geographically far apart, but they all share the same ideas. Your book also touches on the difference between um, what online news media discusses about Orang Asli issues, um, which tends to focus on what politicians say. So although they are talking about uh, Orang Asli issues, it's from the lens of what politicians say versus how indigenous groups tell their own stories on social media. Could you unpack this uh, for me a little bit? This was a chapter that I co-wrote together with uh, Dr. Rusasina Idrus yes. from uh, from uh, you know she's a she's a Orang Asli scholar essentially and mm-hmm. I think what we really found was that uh, the sort of like narrative frames were very very different in the way they was being presented you know there was this very very strong sense of othering that was often present in our mainstream media in Malaysia essentially you know while there were some differences in sort of like the presentation of the in the coverage of the news regarding the election uh, with regards to the Orang Asi community you know especially uh, if it was from Malay language type of media but for the most part there was this overwhelming sense that this community didn't really have a voice you know in terms of 
how certain local, how media outlets actually engage with the community. I think there were only a handful of media outlets that actually done interviews with the people on the ground and spoke to them, you know, which is very different than when you see how election coverage is often done on a much more uh, uh, national scale. Mm-hmm. In most other places, you know, you'd often see at the very least, especially when it comes to any election, there will always be a lot of uh, engagement, a lot of interviews from regular folk and things like that. But for the Orangasi community, it was always, they were often deferring more towards politicians to speak on their behalf as well. And the politicians themselves often resorted to a lot of, you know, age-old stereotypes and tropes regarding the community, often ignoring the fact that many of the people in the Orangasi community actually do uh, sort of like expand to the rest of the state, essentially. And that was something that when we compared that to the wave that um, sort of like we looked at, you know, Facebook online community, online uh, Facebook communities of Orangasi communities, and right. the way that they talked about election was very, very different. They actually had a very strong engagement with regards to the political agency of their own community, and they had a lot of cynicism towards the way that mm. they were viewed in that sense as well. So that was something that really was quite interesting, you know, and it really sort of like broke a lot of the the typical stereotypes is often associated with, you know, indigenous communities that are seen as being politically immature, not really well engaged. Yeah, so that was a very, very interesting uh, chapter. So please do read it. No, it, it is a very interesting chapter. And not just is it an interesting chapter, it is a very interestingly titled chapter, right? It's it's titled, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's titled The Indigenous Community Still Think Najib is the Prime Minister. Um, why, why do you choose that title? This is not something that's unique to, to the Orang Asi community right. coverage as well. You know, you also see this happening quite a bit during campaign, uh, during any sort of political campaigns, whereby a lot of our media tend to just regurgitate a lot of what politicians are saying, essentially. You know, a lot of times they make a lot of these comments, these statements and whatnot. But what was interesting in this particular election was that the politicians themselves were actually uh, reusing and resetting a lot of these very, very... Uh, terms that they themselves didn't experience firsthand. They would often be like, oh, this is what I've heard. This is what my people have been telling me. This is my experience. And then they also, based on their own limited experience, would often come up with all sorts of weird statements like the very infamous, uh, what's it called? Uh, Roti Chanai roads that were present around Cameron (laughs) Highlands. So these things, I mean, when you report it in this way, people who people who are not from that area will also tend to then uh, reinforce or reinstill a lot of these same stereotypes. You know, this whole idea that the community chooses to live in this type of situation. You know, they are seen as being uneducated. They are seen as being uh, not wishing for progress, and uh, it almost seems as though like they are choosing to be in that particular state, which is a very problematic viewpoint. But when you look at the the community themselves and how they sort of like communicate within their online spaces, it's a very, very different dynamic as well. What is that dynamic? Because I think you are absolutely on point, right? When people talk about um, indigenous communities, um, whether it's in East Malaysia or even in Peninsula, there is this assumption that they are naive, they don't know what's best for them, they are ignorant, so on and so forth. And like you said, I think you use the, the phrase very well, they choose to be in that in that situation. What is the reality? So one of the interesting things that we can sort of see in this sort of online communities is that there actually is a wide range of people, uh, I mean, Orang Asli, uh, members of the Orang Asli community that do not live in the campus. They are forced to actually go out into the urban, more urban areas to work. And these online communities are a way for them to connect with the people back, with, sort of like back home. And they sort of like do discuss things in a very much more uh, how do you say, open fashion. You know, all of them do have the exposure. They do sort of understand these things. And the way that they talk about the their political agency, it was actually quite interesting. You know, there was a lot of discussion in the uh, lead up to the election about how, uh, you know, um, uh, BN's selection of uh, sort of like 
uh, YB Ramli as the candidate was a, was seen as a way to sort of like show that they are caring by the community. But there was a lot of cynicism from the right. community in these online spaces, basically saying that, you know, oh, uh, uh, we've seen these sort of moves before. I mean, it's a lot, it's quite interesting, but, you know, we've had so much experience with BN, we are not really sure if we're going to see any positive change in that sense. So you, they were really actively engaging. And, you know, uh, after the elections, a lot of their fears actually were brought up, you know, especially when, you know, uh, sort of like the their, their representative was used to send to various other Orang Asi communities right. being, as though he was like a representative for all Orang Asi. So again, that was a very, very problematic viewpoint which they all articulated very clearly. And again, uh, in these online communities as well, you know, the dynamics also is that because many of these, of their members of the community that are forced to work in this online space in, in sort of like in the urban areas to leave their villages and whatnot, there was a lot of reminiscing about, you know, these are what we, these are our traditional practices. These are things that we are missing and we like to sort of like remind each other that these are what we hold very true and firm for our community. So there, this whole idea that, you know, they're choosing not to embrace and things like that, it's, it's a very, uh, it's not what the community feels in themselves. You know, they really want to sort of like fight for their rights they really want to be part of greater Malaysia essentially but at the same time they also want to hold on to their heritage values as well which is something that is often lost especially when you're looking at how uh, you've got the more the more common form of news that you often see related to the Orang Masih community is often about the issue of land rights about uh, the ability for uh, you know for them to sort of like have control over their land or the recognition that these are their heritage lands as well so that's something that they view very very strongly and they do want to hold on to that but at the same time they also want to be seen as being accepted in the Malaysian community in that sense. On the show with me today is Dr. Benjamin Lowe and Professor James Chin, editors of the new book, New Media in the Margins. After the break, we talk about the Sugu Pavitra saga. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan. And on the show with me today is Dr. Benjamin Lowe and Professor James Chin, editors of the book, New Media in the Margins. And we're unpacking this book. So perhaps the most fascinating chapter, and I had I read this chapter like a couple of times uh, because it, it was that it really like a window into a new world. Um, it's, it's called Romance Through Digital Avatars. Tell me about what marriage means within the migrant communities in Sabah especially women, and how does social media tie into it? It's interesting that you mentioned that this is the most interesting chapter. So this is where James and I are really very grateful to our authors for putting all the time and effort into uh, exploring these different values. But this one chapter was written by Sabah anthropologist Dr. Vilashini Somia. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, she employs a very strong narrative focus, you know, and therefore this is a chapter that actually reads very, it, it reads very well for a more popular audience. Due to her sort of like uh, anthropological background, it has a, it has a much more uh, interesting kind of narrative approach, but of course not to sort of like take away from the other authors as well. With regards to the chapter, it talks about how the uh, irregular migrant communities in Sabah and the way that they view marriage in a certain sense. For those who may not know, what are irregular migrant communities? Okay, okay so irregular migrants essentially are uh, migrants in Sabah who do not either have who do not have documentation, who are not who do not have any sort of like formal documents as well, or they might have 
kind of documentation that is not necessarily uh, sort of like recognized or they do not have anything that is seen recognized by the state essentially. So that's what we often refer to. You know, it's a much more accurate term than just using the term undocumented because undocumented uh, has some certain issues associated with the term. Right. So, so irregular is a much more uh, gen general term that uh, properly reflects their actual situation. Mm -hmm. So for the irregular migrant community, marriage is always, especially for for women there as well, marriage is seen as a way in which um, it provides security, it provides uh, access to uh, resources and whatnot. And again, in terms of the legality aspect, the formal aspects of marriage, that's something that is seen as a relatively new phenomena as well. And for many irregular migrants who, of course, if you are uh, if you don't have a recognized documented status as well, you know, getting a formal legalized marriage is often not possible, but an informal marriage is still uh, a cultural marriage. Is still something that is very, very common and often practiced there as well. And many women do engage in sort of like trying to seek either a local husband or some somebody that can provide that level of security. And also it allows them to have a much more safe position within the community right. because there is this perception that, you know, young, unmarried or unattached uh, migrant women are seen as a threat to the sort of like the community spaces whereby they can be assumed to be trying to uh, sort of like lure either the local men or married men in that sense. So if right. they are married to somebody that uh, assures the community and, and ensures that they become a part of the be, have a better chance of being accepted in the community essentially. People often take the concept of digital mm -hmm. avatars for granted, right? Um, I mean, everybody can go on, on whether it's Twitter, Facebook, even ga gaming platforms, you know, create an account, put whatever character like myself. I love Kylo Ren from Star Wars. So I put Kylo Ren's pictures, change my name into something else. And then I start talking to people as this, this sort of character, character being my avatar. But what do digital avatars offer marginalized groups, especially when it comes to irregular migrant women in Sabah? So the what you've described essentially in the early days of the internet, this was a right. very very common place. You know, pre when we're talking about the the days of the of, of the internet before social media, mm -hmm. this whole idea of presenting as something else, you know, being uh, right. living out your fantasy, uh, also a form of escapism where you can sort of like live a different life or you can perform having a different sort of like online personality as well. Uh, and I think in today's social media environment, a lot of that has been seen as being uh, not very, not a, not a common practice, essentially, you know, this whole point, the whole point of social media now is that you should present as yourself. You can right. still perform in different environments. You know, you can like, you know how on LinkedIn, you're supposed to be more professional, yeah. whereas on uh, on Facebook, it's really more personal. Yeah. But the idea here is that you are supposed to be yourself. You shouldn't be using a pseudonym. You shouldn't be acting as someone else entirely as well. But for many of irregular migrant women, where their social status is often very precarious, you know, they are, don't have access to a lot of things. So their day-to-day -day life is often seen as very dreary and not very particularly good. So for them to engage in the use of these digital avatars to sort of like engage in, in romantic relationships with people, this is a way for them to actually get some sort of agency, you know, some sort of control that they don't usually have in their uh, regular life. And it also acts as a very uh, strong form of escapism for them, whereby they can uh, imagine what would be life would be like if they were actually sort of like properly documented, they were legal in the country as well. And by engaging these practices, that gives them some comfort in the reality of that they're actually living in their daily life, essentially. I want to also talk about um, the Rohingya refugees um, because, you know, this book touches on so many different groups. Um, uh, you know, there was a time um, in Malaysia when sentiments against um, Rohingya refugees weren't as hateful as it is today. I'm not saying it was utopia or anything like that or there was no xenophobia, but 
when you compare the, the level of xenophobia that permeates on social media today, it is rather scary. It is shocking. It is scary. And I'm not even from this community. I can only imagine how it, how it must feel for people from the community. Talk to me about what you found out about the narrative surrounding this particular refugee community since COVID-19, especially on so- social media. So this particular chapter on the Rohingya community written by two up-and-coming like, academics, you know, you've got uh, Noor Shazwani and also Aslam, who are both currently doing their PhDs, basically. And they have been working in this space. So I think uh, for most Malaysians who are looking at the Rohingya community, Aslam uh, Jalil is definitely somebody who is really very prominent there as well. And we really appreciate their contribution. And a lot of the other chapters have a very sort of like positive outlook. You have like, you feel optimistic about the future of Malaysia, even if you don't really get a lot of very good uh, vibes from it at the end of it. But this particular chapter really just seems very, very cynical by the end of the read, essentially. And right. part of it is because, as you mentioned, you know, the community was heavily attacked. They really had little refuge in that sense. And the way that the community sort of like sought to sort of like uh, fight for themselves really was to try to reduce the attack they were getting throughout their entire time over the course of COVID nineteen. Essentially, you know, you know, early on in the in the pandemic in Malaysia, they were presented as public enemy number one. You know, I think for a lot of people, they were essentially blamed for you know the outbreak, the spread of it, and for the cause basically not. Uh, for sort of like the 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 growth of the the pandemic in the country early on, when uh, it just seemed as though it was a convenient because you know this this is a group that was you know uh, that lacks a proper legal status in this country. They're not given a lot of means to to defend themselves, and the way that the community responded was really to engage is what what is known as grateful politics. This whole idea that the the community has to really. Um, try to show the Malaysian public that they are really very thankful to, to be in the situation. They almost debase themselves in order to achieve that. You know, they really uh, dehumanize themselves. You know, one of the big uh, narratives that was being, being presented by, you know, a lot of the xenophobic arguments was this idea that this community was trying to fight to get sort of like Malay rights, essentially. You know, that was one of Bumi Pusha rights. That was one of the big arguments that we presented. And the community had to go to great lengths just to say that, no, we are not looking for that. We just... We are very thankful that we're given a place here to sort of like to seek refuge while we sort of like wait to return. And it was very, very disheartening to sort of read the kind of like words, because essentially, you know, if you follow the kind of tribulations that the community goes through, essentially, you know, if you're a refugee in this country, you are not afforded any rights. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed access to a lot of public services as well. And I think for many of the earlier uh, activism that was done by the community was that they just wanted to be given some basic human rights, you know, the right to work, the right to some legal access to certain services as well. And for people to use that and turn it into this greater idea that they wanted to get Bumi Putra rights was a little bit uh, problematic. And I think the community tried to really distance themselves from that as a result of that. And it was very painful to sort of read that kind of aspect as well. And I think moving forward, I think that is really the mode that they're into it as well, because I think they are so afraid that, I mean, right now, the that latent xenophobia towards the community is still present until today, but the noise about it is, is has sort of like lowered down quite a bit as well. So I think they're hoping to maintain that until things improve, I suppose. It's really, very, very sad to hear. Uh, to add on what Ben yes. said, I think the, the reason why this chapter is extremely important mm-hmm. because it shows a side of, uh, of of Malaysian cyberspace, how toxic it can become. And in and one of the points that uh, Ben did not mention uh, is, is that one of the reasons why this has become a, 
flashpoint is that because it was always widely understood, at least among the general public, that the Rohingyas will will be welcome in Malaysia because you know they're part of the bigger Muslim Ummah. And yet somehow when they arrive in this country, they were not accepted as part of the bigger uh, Muslim Ummah. I think one of the important points about the Rohingya chapter is that um, one thing about the Malaysian uh, uh, cyberspace, that it can also become a very illogical thing. Uh, the way the attacks are framed against the Rohingyas is, is almost as if they're not humans at all. Right. And it is, it is all, all, all very strange because uh, they are just the latest wave of people who have come to Malaysia because prior to the Rohingyas, uh, there are several other groups that also came before the advent of the so-called uh, social media age. You got the Chings, uh, you know, from Cambodia, the Champas, they, they all came in large numbers uh, to Malaysia, but they never faced this sort of thing about uh, what has happened to Rohingyas. And I think this shows that in the Malaysian cyberspace, um, there's something happening, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, once a, a, a community uh, uh, has been attacked on social media, people just sort of pile onto it. And you find this happening uh, increasingly uh, you know, in, in the debate uh, on, on Malaysia media, you know, especially when it comes to political issues. People seem to have lost all their sense of common sense, if you want to, want to put it there. They, they just hop on to, to one or two single issues. And this thing about uh, you know, being, being grateful in terms of the Rohingya community, to me, is 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 really quite quite interesting in the sense that you know uh, these people are are, are refugees. Uh, they really have uh, nothing left. The only thing Malaysia actually provides for them is basically just a a, a place, uh, you know, a, a safe place. Because as Ben mentioned, Malaysia is actually not a signatory to the International Convention on Refugees. We actually don't provide anything for them. In fact, the situation here is 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 quite uh, quite unusual in that. Uh, these refugees get their uh, so-called refugee card from the UNHCR, but the card itself is actually not recognized by the Malaysian government. So you have a weird situation where officially Malaysia provides safe haven for them, but the moment you arrive, they say that you can't work, you can't do anything, you just sit there. Then when they ask how we're gonna how we're gonna put food on the table, right? Uh, they just say that that is your problem. But I'm very pleased with this chapter because I think it really highlights, you know, uh, you know that in cyberspace, in many ways, it also highlights the reality of Malaysian society. I think you all brought up an excellent point about the dehumanization of the Rohingya community. Ben, you, you mentioned earlier that things are starting to cool down a little bit um, since the, the, the end of the pandemic. Um, do, you, do you see a changing of minds among uh, Malaysians? To be honest, I don't think we're seeing much of a change, mm -hmm. to be honest. I think it's really more that previously because of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of like uh, anxiety amongst most Malaysians and they just needed somebody to blame essentially. And I think this is where you could sort of see that the government sort of like uses this as an opportunity to, oh, we can deflect some of the blame to this particular community. Um, this whole idea of xenophobia, as what James mentioned, this is not something that is, it's not something that's necessarily unique towards the region community because again, uh, I've also been monitoring online spaces and the irregular migrant community in Sabah experiences similar kind of rhetoric as well. Right. So, and you know, I've read a lot of comments about how, you know, these people should be sent back. I think I even read some to even argue that they should be sort of like executed to a certain extent. That was how extreme some of the comments would come on this, some of these online spaces as well. So uh, in terms of some of these 
so like discourses, especially when it when it comes to, you know, a lot of the rhetoric regarding the irregular migrant community in Sabah, it really is about groups of people who are coming in and seemingly gaining certain rights. You know, a lot of this is tied back to, of course, the, the sort of like Project IC that took place in the 70s in Sabah. And a lot of that, and a lot of that uh, anxieties are still felt by people today. You know, you've got groups of people who are coming in, they're brought in and they are, they have, they've been used for political purposes. So there's a lot of cynicism and very, very antagonistic viewpoints that, again, this, the Rohingya community probably might be going through that route as well, you know. And so it makes total sense, you know, for some people, resources in Malaysia, or rather citizenship in Malaysia is seen as a very powerful tool. It's something that we have as a right and we get access to, you know, health, to education and whatnot. And for people to come in and try to get a hold of that, it's always seen as, oh, you're threatening my rights. You're taking, uh, you're taking these resources that is already to the breaking point. You know, a lot of the discussion about, you know, our current state of our healthcare really is rooted in the fact that we have a semi-public healthcare system that is pretty much designed to only cater towards people who are carrying and I carrying a citizenship as well. So for any sort of like discourse where you've got foreigners who are coming in and seemingly becoming part of that group, that is seen as a threat to certain groups of Malaysians who feel that, no, this is our right. We cannot allow other people to start to steal this from us as well. And I think until we sort of like engage in this properly, you know, again, uh, right now, the overwhelming rhetoric is still very, very negative. And I think a lot of people, especially activist groups are trying to, we need to find a way to get to change the narrative, to shift the viewpoint as well. But until we can solve the greater issue about how a lot of our public services are being stretched to their limits and trying to fix that issue, uh, these type of discussions will continue to be there as well. Think about this uh, hateful or hate speech towards the Rohingya community. I think we also uh, have to take into account that uh, a lot of these people are what we might call uh, keyboard people. Yep. In other words, in real life, they may not dare to make those sort of statements that we see, You know, especially the more nasty side like what Ben was saying talking about uh, the kicking these people out, arresting them, all this sort of thing. Um, I think what you find in in, in the uh, Malaysian cyberspace, and this has been brought by uh, research and other studies, is that a lot of uh, Malaysians actually have multiple identities. And this is linked to the chapter we had on, on you know, the chapter you talked about, the Sabah, irregular yes. women, the women. Uh, one of the reasons they created the avatar is that, you know, they, they wanted to project themselves in a normal way. In other words, they are they are not hiding from the law because they are PDI. They're just normal people looking for a life partner. But what you find in Malaysia, a piece of interesting research that came out a couple of years ago was that Malaysia, for example, right, we have more social media account than I think three times the population of Malaysia. Right. And it's the same thing with 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 mobile phones. You know, right? Most of us have more than one mobile phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so you so so it, it, it is quite clear that you know that there, there is uh for lack of a better word, uh somehow uh Malaysia's the moment they get into cyberspace, some of those most nasty sentiments come out, float to the surface and, and you know. They, they act on it because it because they think that nobody can identify them. And and if you want to see examples of this, uh, the best place to go is, of course, Twitter. Malaysian Twitter is really, really bad in terms of, you know, its level of toxicity. Your book also has a chapter on um, 
Sugu and Pavitra, the Malaysian Indian YouTube couple. Um, I think those th- those are names that many pe- many listeners will be familiar with. Um, so what's interesting is y'all point out how this YouTube couple um, during the pandemic they broke both class and ethnic barriers in the media space. Could you explain this for me and why you think this couple's story offers an interesting look at understanding the Indian community and the struggles they face? So this chapter was written by uh, Prof Shanti and I sort of assisted her with it as well. And it's a very, very interesting case study. You know, this was a this was a couple that really rose to fame as a result of the pandemic. People were forced home and they just needed to watch things. And, you know, the videos that they created were very, very comforting. It resonated with a lot of Malaysians as well. In particular, uh, from the Malay community as well. You know, they right. were the darling of the uh, Malay mainstream pop culture spaces as well. You know, they were invited for various talk shows. They were covered by various uh, Malay language-based media, both uh, sort of like influencers and also local Malay media as well. You know, they were covered in newspapers and things like that. The prime minister, you know, mentioned her in one of his, I think, MCO addresses as right. well. And so they really were like a very, very prominent feature as well. And they And the reason they got to that point was because they really did create content that really uh, resonated with the Malay community. You know, they spoke in Malay, very, very crisp, uh, sort of like Malay language. You know, they they also engaged in providing recipes that was more uh, catered towards educating um, sort of like um, general Malaysians as to how to sort of like do uh, uh, sort of like Indian cooking and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And what was most striking was that, you know, when we first, when this chapter was originally conceptualized, Sukupavitra was still going very, very strong. And uh, and so, you know, Prof Shanti and I were thinking like, oh, it's it's interesting to sort of chart and sort of like just do a deep dive into how is it that, you know, this channel is doing so well. And again, uh, if you look into the history of it, you can sort of tell in the early days of the, of that of the channel, you know, they were broadcasting it from their home in the estates. Uh, you know, the husband, uh, uh, Sugu, basically was working in the estates there as well. And you could sort of see the kind of very, very humble lifestyle that they were li- living as well. But the thing is, midway through us writing the chapter, that whole police case started to happen, you know, whereby, you know, there were some uh, alleged issues of uh, domestic abuse and some sort of cases. And the moment that happened, the entire mainstream community dropped them, you know, you know, previous, if you looked at the height of their popularity on any given week, you'd be seeing at least like a dozen uh, like YouTube accounts, you'd be seeing just about everybody just giving them as much airtime as well, because they were really the talk of the town, so to speak. And and the moment that happened, all the old stereotypes started to come back towards this couple. You know, previously before uh, earlier on, people used to talk about how like this is a very revolutionary couple. You know, you here you have like the wife taking over the roles and having a supportive husband that supported the wife. And people were very, very excited to talk about this couple. But the moment, you know, this sort of domestic charge happened, again, involving somebody in a drunken stupor doing certain things, a lot of the old stereotypes often associated with uh, working class uh, sort of plantation uh, Tamilans started to come back as well. And just like that, I think within the space of a, a month, the entire internet or the entire Malaysia essentially forgot about them as well. You know, and the, the couple. I mean, I was also sort of charting the their their attempt to return to that space for a long time and nothing seemed to materialize as a result of that. And so this entire chapter, what was supposed to start as like, okay, let's take a look at how we can see this interesting case study of these members of this very, very marginalized, impoverished community. How were they able to break out of those barriers? And then it suddenly became a very sort of like problematic viewpoint of how precarious being in the limelight in Malaysia can be. And the moment you break those 
uh, ideals or your image is shattered, then people will just forget you very, very quickly. And I think it was a very uh, sad chapter as a result. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I think this is probably the most poignant and profound sentences I've found in your book. And and I quote, it says it, um, the Sugupavitra saga, serves as a cautionary tale where marginalized groups can only ever capture mainstream attention by integrating with or pandering to this mainstream culture. What do you mean by this? Sugupavitra was a, uh, the way that their videos are created really was uh, you know, done in Malay, you know, all of it was narrated in Malay. And the way that they approached it was that the videos were really catered towards a working class Malaysian audience. You know, they uh, they would basically be using a lot of like uh, inexpensive ingredients, you know, a lot of very non-traditional techniques to cook. But these were techniques that were either would be very efficient, they would save time and they would still achieve the same results to a certain degree. And again, you know, and one of the things that we really noted in the in the way that we examined this was that a lot of people a lot of the public basically were incredibly supportive of them and would say things. They would say things like, oh, if you watch the videos, uh, make sure that you watch all the ads because this this couple that is coming from an estate background, they need all the help they can get and we want to support them in any way. But, you know, the thing is, when people mention this idea that they come from the estates, you know, being a plantation, being coming from the, you know, the Tamil estates in Malaysia, you are actually from a very impoverished background as well. You know, you're almost... Uh, it's almost as though it's kind of like a form of indentured slavery now at this point. It's it's a very contemporary form that still exists today. But there was often no discussion about how is it that, why is it that this couple that seemingly had a job, or I think another thing that really came about was that, you know, people heard that uh, Pavitra, who was such a very, she's a very articulate person. She's very, very, uh, clearly somebody who is actually quite intelligent, quite smart, capable of doing all these things. But if in one of her interviews, she mentioned that, you know, actually she was doing very well in school, but because the family was very poor, she was forced to sort of like quit her education and just become a homemaker essentially at, at that point. But a lot of the discussion about why is it that a family had to resort to making YouTube videos in order to be to sort of like survive was never actually brought up. Like, why is it, are we not taking a deeper look as to how the lived experiences of, you know, these uh, Indian estate sort of like families uh, in, in the greater scheme of things. Because if you, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, being, um, um, I want to draw back on an example that I, that sort of like really changed the way that I look at the way uh, estate workers are, are looked in this country, you know. If you look at the fine description of what it means to be, I don't know if you remember, the recipient of the BRIM program, right. the Bantu Malaysia program, the general understanding from most people is that, oh, this applies to everybody Every Malaysian is If you're Malaysian, you can benefit from this. But if you look at the actual fine, fine wording of that uh, of that program, it actually excludes two groups in particular. The first group basically is if you are an Orang Asli community member, because the idea here is that Jakwa takes care of the Orang Asli membership and therefore they don't want to double dip. But again, that's another discussion. But again, it tells you the duality about how all of these programs are run. And if you are also from a plantation community as well. You are also not allowed to partake from that as well. So that sort of says about how is it, why is it that we have this this program, a welfare program that's supposed to be for all Malaysians, but you've got these groups of people who are clearly excluded as a result of that. So none of these discussions were taking place. People were just sort of happy, like going like, oh, this couple is so good. And a lot of the discussions also took on a very, there were a lot of racial undertones to them as well. This whole idea that, oh, these are the model minorities. These are the people that every other minority should aspire 
aspire to be like, you know, they should speak Malay, to they should try to present towards the more mainstream or majority audience and everybody should try to do that. But the moment they stepped out on the bit, all that came crashing down as a result of that. And that's why... You know, this, like you said, it, it, this was a very heartbreaking chapter to write, essentially. Absolutely. Very heartbreaking. The, their journey went, like you said, you know, they were model minorities at one point. A small glitch in the in the narrative happened and they went back to those Indians. You know, that's how yeah. they behave. Um, before we wrap this conversation up, um, closing thoughts, gentlemen. Um, what are some of the future trends and possibilities um, you think that, you know, marginalized groups may continue to use social media to drive social change? Um, ben? So closing thoughts, first off, um, I just want to sort of like thank the other authors that mm-hmm. I wasn't able to mention today. You know, we've got uh, sort of like El Muhammadi and also uh, Colin Jerome, both who wrote uh, very, very interesting chapters on other sort of like marginalized groups as well. And they really made a contribution. Sorry, we didn't have time to sort of talk about those mm-hmm. chapters as well. Interesting takeaway from this is that we don't see ourselves as being the definitive book that looks at all these minority groups and other communities in Malaysia. So there are plenty of other examples that we just couldn't fit into this book as well. But we hope that this book would serve as a starting point for at least people, even if you're not an academic, but people to understand that there are other experiences that may not match what you see as the ideal being part of the mainstream Malaysian community. And I think that maybe may start a conversation that will perhaps improve conditions for many of these groups. And from our discussion, you can see today, you have some groups that really sort of like really take control or use new media as a way to give them political voice and for them to really engage in the mainstream spaces. You also have some using sort of like new media as a way to sort of like break through uh, some of the problems that are restricting them in the more physical space as well. And then you also have some communities who are really trying to negotiate some sort of um, existence within these online spaces and, you know, trying to avoid the limelight, trying to avoid any sort of like negative attention because there is just so much that's out there as well. And so we hope that this book fundamentally will at least bring about or start a conversation regarding many of these online spaces. Because again, new media, just because something is new, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be good or beneficial to all, essentially. It's always going to be negotiated. It's always going to be used in very, very different ways. And I think it's important to understand that we need to unpack and we need to be prepared to look at the sort of like the uh, the dark underbelly for many of these issues as well. James, closing thoughts from you. One is that I think uh, the book shows quite clearly that uh, the Malaysian mosaic is more than the Chinese Indians uh, and the Malay community. And that, you know, like the real world out there is actually a very, very interesting place. There are many different groups, many cultures, uh, many religious groups, uh, many other marginalized groups that we don't often hear about. But somehow, because it is the virtual space, uh, they're all given an opportunity to create their own little place under the Malaysian sun. I think that's number one. Uh, secondly, uh, just to add on to what Ben has said, I think it's critically important that given that social media is becoming part of our lives, I think uh, you know it's quite clear that you know uh, it really doesn't matter where you are in Malaysia, you can live in the in the darkest corner in Kelantan in Sabah, Sarawak. You can't run away from social media. And uh, it is it is almost taken for granted now that social media is does not only reflect reality but it also reflects the politics of this country, and whether you like it or not, you really can't run away from politics. And social media, you know, is a sort of a mirror to the wider Malaysian uh, uh, polity, the wider Malaysian community, and that the more we understand social media in Malaysia, it's really an issue of understanding ourselves. So my final thought is that please go and buy the book if you can't buy at least the online chapters. <laughs> Absolutely. Please go and check the book out. Indeed, it is very fascinating. James, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. 
You're very Thank welcome. You so Thank you for having us. That was Dr. Benjamin Lowe and Professor James Chin, editors of the book New Media in the Margins. If you miss any part of our conversation, you can also check out the podcast on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast. Um, if you'd like to get the book, some details are in the description as well. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.